There are some other people coming, but we're not going to wait any longer for them. People upstairs said, don't start, we'll be right down and so on, but we can't do that. You people are too patient for this. The topic this evening is the sun. Maybe I don't even need this thing. But uh, overcoming the music next door. It's a wedding next door. If you'd rather go to the wedding reception, <laughs> they're going to be in there till 10 o'clock, and then they're all invited in here. So the topic is the sun, and I hope everybody enjoyed the sun today because it was very nice and warm. And did it occur to you that if the sun did not come up tomorrow morning, we'd be in trouble? How long do you think we could make it if the sun did not come up tomorrow morning? Well, the next day, see now here's one guess. If it would come up the next day, we might hold out. It would get colder and colder. Half an hour. Well, no, the sun isn't up all night, you know. Yeah, but is it doing us any good now? Is the sun doing us any good right now? What is it doing? On the other side, it's heating the earth. Now, if it didn't come around and heat it this side, how long would it take it to get so cold here on the earth that everything would die? A week? Could we make it a week with furnaces and all? Nuclear power? Well, what I'm trying to get at is that without the sun, there would be no life on Earth. In fact, every form of energy, including the gasoline in your car, and every form of energy except nuclear power and the heat from the interior of the Earth come from the sun. Trace it backward. You burn gas in your car. Where did the gas come from? It was distilled from petroleum. Where did the petroleum come from? Petroleum is from fossils, right? We call it a fossil fuel. Fossil of what? Fossil of a growing thing, either a plant or an animal. What made the plant or animal grow? The sun. And you can do the same thing with, well, look out here. What makes those waves roll in here? Margaret said this afternoon, where does the energy come from for those waves to keep rolling and rolling in here? Well, what makes the waves? The wind. What makes the wind? Different temperatures. What makes different temperatures? The sun. You can trace it back to the sun every time except the heat on the interior of the earth. And this is what I'm getting at. If the sun would not come up for a week, it would disappear altogether. One way to stay warm is to dig a deep hole because the farther down you go, the warmer it gets. The interior of the earth is very warm, a deep mine is very warm, and you could stay warm in there forever. So we would have heat down there, but pretty soon we'd run out of cornflakes and a few other things that are grown with the power of the sun. The sun is not just a topic of curiosity. The sun is the reason for our life, for the support system for our life. We're just at the right distance from the sun, neither too hot nor too cold. If we were closer to the sun, there'd be no water out there. It would all evaporate. If we'd be farther from the sun, it'd all be ice. You have to be on a planet that has liquid water, and no other planet has that. 
we are just, thank God, at the right distance from the sun. The sun is just the right temperature to make life possible on this planet, and there is no other place in the solar system where this happens, and so far as astronomers know, there is no other place in the universe where this happens. Life may be unique to this planet, which is very scary. If we blow it here, boom, the universe is dead. So the sun is a very vital topic. So what I'd like to do is first give you its vital statistics. What's the first thing we'd like to know about the sun? Well, it's not all yell at once. Oh, certainly. I want to see if I'm in the same rational sequence as your mind is. Ah, that's not usually the first thing, but why don't we put it down anyway? It's usually the second thing people want to know about the sun. That's what the I'll take yours. Okay. And we'll put the next thing down right away so you don't feel neglected. Size. How far away the sun is. This is not so easy to determine. In fact, there was, it wasn't so long ago that a person was burned at the stake for saying that the sun is a hot rock 5,000 miles away. Well, now, if you were on the jury for that trial, how would you determine whether he's right or not? How do you determine the distance to the sun? Look at it. Doesn't do any good. Well, there are several sophisticated methods. We can use triangulation with other planets. We can use Kepler's equations and so on. The easiest way, though, is to take a radar, shoot it at the sun, bounce it off, and measure the time it took. That's not how Galileo. Galileo did not know how far away the sun was. He had a guess. Neither did Kepler. Even though Kepler worked out the laws of planetary motion, he didn't know how far away that anything was. Because he didn't have radar, he didn't, have the, he didn't even have Kepler's laws at first. <laughs> but we bounce radar. The difficulty with bouncing radar from the sun, though, is that when you shoot it up there, which part of the sun is it going to bounce from? When you bounce radar from that wall, you know where the wall is. But the sun is a gas, and it just starts and gets thicker and thicker. So which part of the sun are we talking about? So when I say, what is the distance to the sun, I mean the distance to the part of the sun that you see up there. As you'll see a little later, there are parts of the sun that we cannot see. And it may shock you to know that we are inside the sun. The sun is not off in the distance somewhere. We're part of it. We are in the sun. But when you look up there and see that round object, that's what people usually call the sun. But that's only the light part of the sun. That's the light-giving part. That's called the photosphere, the light sphere. That's what people usually mean. I'll show you pictures later. I want to do this part first so people all gather in here. Then we have to turn the lights off for this machine because it's an opaque projector. And I can show you pictures from some very recent NASA releases on the sun that I don't have in slides yet or overhead that anybody can get, by the way. You can go to Washington and get these pictures. I'll show you. They're not copyrighted. You paid for them. Skylab took thousands and thousands of pictures of the sun that are free of charge. In fact, I'm going down there in a few weeks to get some more. The distance to the sun, to the part that we can see, to the photosphere, is 93 million 
or second would say million miles. This is a very important number and it is called one astronomical unit. It's just like one inch in our measuring system or one centimeter if you're metric or whatever. One astronomical unit is the distance from the Earth to the bright part of the Sun. But that number is an average because the distance to the Sun varies. Now how do we know that? If you take a picture through a filter of the Sun all year long, it will not show the Sun the same size. It will be bigger and smaller. My students in astronomy lab have to do that, project the picture of the sun taken each month of the year and measure it very accurately with a metric ruler and then make a graph. And out of that graph comes the orbit of the Earth around the sun. And it's not circular. The sun is farther away and closer as the Earth's orbit varies. Which part of the year do you suppose the sun is closest to us? in winter is correct. The sun is closer in our winter. You know, when we have winter here, Australia has summer. So when you say winter and summer, it wouldn't help for the whole Earth at one time. We happen to be closest to the sun in January. If we were farthest from the sun in January, would it get much colder here? Not really. It's not so much the distance to the sun that makes it hot and cold, but how directly the rays from the sun hit the Earth. So this distance, the closest distance in January, has a name, and it's called perihelion. <laughs> so you always want to go home from a lecture and remember a few new words. And you can tell and you all people and say, do you know what perihelion is? Peri who? <laughs> now, perihelion is the closest distance. And in January, the sun is about 3 million miles closer to the Earth than it is in June. And the distance in June is called the, now don't say this wrong, aphelion. Why it isn't aphelion, I don't know, but astronomers call it aphelion. Perihelion means close, aphelion means far away. Now, 93 million is so far that we have a difficult time imagining that distance. 93 million miles, how far is that? The Earth is 25,000 miles in circumference. It's much farther than, what, and than that. A good handle on it is to remember that the sun is about 400 moons away. That means the sun is 400 times as far away from the earth as the moon. It's also 400 times bigger than the moon. That's a very weird coincidence. And therefore the two look the same size. They are both the size, and we're getting to size now, that a dime would be if you hold it at arm's length, unless you have strange arms. A normal human being holding a dime at arm's length will see that dime the same size as the moon and the sun. Don't try to cover the sun that way, though. You'll burn your eyeballs. Try it at the moon tonight. Hold a dime at arm's length when you get outside. It'll just cover the moon. That size of a dime at arm's length, or the moon, or the sun, is one-half degree. How many degrees are there from horizon to horizon? 180. There are 360 marked right all the way around in a circle. Half a circle is horizon to horizon is 180. Therefore, how many suns could you rack up from east to west? 
360. It doesn't seem that way. When you look at it, it looks bigger because it's so bright. Moon, you could put 360 full moons next to each other from east to west. And it's not true that the moon is bigger when it's on the horizon. It just looks bigger because you're in love. It's that way all around the horizon. It's the same size. That's called the moon illusion. It's not true that it's bigger on the horizon. It's only because it looks like a big pizza pie. Now, the, the size of the sun is one half degree. Now, how big is the sun actually in miles if it looks a half a degree at a distance of 93 million miles? Simple trigonometry. Just set up a little ratio, plug it into the computer. It comes out that the sun is 864,000 miles in diameter. Is that big? That's big. How big is the Earth? 8,000 miles in diameter. So I like to say it this way, that the sun is 100 Earths across. You could put 100 Earths across the sun. That's a lot. That's a lot. If you put the sun up there and the Earth on top of it, you could hardly find it. You need a telescope to find the Earth up there. Just be a little black spot. Well, if you could put 100 Earths this way, 100 Earths this way, and this way, and this way, how many Earths could you put inside the sun? Obviously, 100 times 100 times 100, right? That's how many zeros? Six. 100, 100, 100 is six zeros, and what do we call that? That's one million. One million Earths would fit inside the sun. That's the part of the sun we can see. That's not even the part of the sun that we're in. We'll talk about that later, as I said before, if uh, you want to hang around long enough. Now, what's the next thing you'd like to know? I bet I know already, because I primed some of you in advance. <laughs> ah, see, now that shows we didn't check it out in advance. We'll get, leave the heart a little bit. What do you want to next after, one next after, how big it is? Where? Naturally, you want to know how much does it weigh. Don't you want to know that? I don't care if you don't want to know that. I'm going to tell you how much the sun weighs. A better way to put it is what is the mass of the sun, because the sun doesn't weigh anything. It's floating up there. It's weightless. See? That's why you didn't ask how much it weighs, right? It's zero. But it means how much mass. How If you had a great big... Is it teeter-totter or seesaw on the East Coast? When I go one place, they laugh and I say seesaw, and in San Francisco, they yell seesaw. Seesaw. In the Midwest, is teeter-totter. A seesaw, if you put the sun on one side, how many Earths would you have to put on the other side to balance it off? Well, use a little magic here. How many? A million. Wrong. That's a... That would be assuming that the earth and the sun are made of the same stuff, right? The green cheese. It are not. It would take only 333,000 earths to balance the sun, even though the sun is a million times as big. Therefore, what kind of stuff is the sun made of? Gas, right. We call that density. How dense is the sun? Well, it's 333,000 over 1 million. 
That's about one-third. In fact, I wrote it that way so it comes out nice. One-third Earth. Well, how much times, how many more times dense, is that the way it? Anyway, how much denser than water? The Earth is made of rocks, right? Wrong. Only the top of the Earth is made of rocks. If you go down deep enough, the Earth is almost 100% solid iron. We can figure that out even though we haven't been down there. So the density of the Earth is about five and a half times water, like iron. Now if you take one-third of that, you come out to about 1.4 water. I thought the sun is a gas. If, the, if you had a big enough tub and put the sun in it, the sun would sink. There is only one object in the solar system, only one planet that would float in water. You know which one it is? No? No? Correct, Saturn. The ring has nothing to do with it. See, Rob had my course a long time ago, but... <laughs> Saturn would float in water. The sun would not. The Saturn is fluffier than the sun. So the difference between the sun and the planet is not how dense they are. Because some of the planets are less dense than the sun. Even Jupiter is. Whether, I'll ask it in the quiz later. What is a planet? It's not how light it is. It's how it moves that makes it a planet. The sun has a density heavier than water. Well, how can it be heavier than water when it's made of a gas? Yeah, see, I knew you wanted to know that. How can that be? You should know that. Your brother is an authority on this. Her brother is a research chemist. Just came through with a big new invention. Because what did he do? He, that's right. He's a high pr I know he's high pressure. He's a high pressure chemist. The gas in the sun is under intense pressure. You would be too if you were that big. It's the gravity of the sun that pushes that gas together and makes it 1.4 times heavier than water. On the average, the outside of the sun is lighter than water. The inside of the sun is a lot heavier and it averages out to 1.4. Well, we're getting closer and closer to what some people want to know in the first place. And that is, how hot is the sun? We have to get to the real pictures pretty soon. This is just the stuff we're doing to let all the people come in later. We have a quiz in this part. Now, <laughs> the temperature depends on the part of the sun you're talking about. Well, what parts are there? We don't know. We, don't, we haven't been there. I, I mentioned that to a student one time that we cannot send a spaceship to the sun and he said, why not? We could go at night. <laughs> you got that? It wouldn't be so hot. All right. Well, the sun, like everything else, has an inside, a middle, and an outside. So we call that the inside. No, that's, in astronomy, if you don't use fancier names, you can't get a good salary. No. The next part is, I told you this part already. What's the layer called that we can see? See, you were listening. Mark was listening. Photosphere. 
And above the photosphere is a part called the chromosphere. These are just fancy words to impress people. And the next part is called the corona. The core, and this is a pure guess, pure guess, about 36 million degrees Fahrenheit. That's hot. But I got news for you. We have made hotter temperatures than that on Earth, right in Princeton, New Jersey. We have exceeded that temperature inside a torus. A torus is a magnetic bottle. Because if we can make it hotter than that, maybe we can make our own sun in case it goes out. Or if we run out of energy, we can make power the way the sun is making it. Nobody's cranking it. So maybe we can, or maybe somebody is. Now, the photosphere, the part we can see, if you take a filter, never look at the sun directly, by the way, because you can go blind painlessly. It doesn't hurt. You have no pain nerves in your retina at all. But if you look at the sun, and during eclipses, we give people special equipment. This is one we gave to people in our eclipse cruise a few years ago, where everybody, this was to protect their eyes around the outside. In the center is double exposed film, and you can look at the sun through here. The trouble is, if you look at it through here, it has the wrong color. Because this is not a neutral density filter, that means it doesn't take the color out equally. Also, if you scratch it, light comes through and you can burn your eyes. So I don't like to give people these on our expeditions. I give them welder's goggles. Number 14 welder's goggles approved by the U.S. government to remove infrared and ultraviolet. We've looked at eight eclipses now over the years and no eye damage. But I did read recently at a convention, I heard a lecture, that they may not be safe either. But if you look through a filter like this, neutral density, that means that takes the 99% of the light away equally in all colors. What color do you think the sun is? White is wrong. It's yellow, right. I'll show you some pictures in a moment, but it'll be dark, so I can't show you the rest of these. Let me do it first. Now, what difference does that make if it's yellow? The yellow tells the temperature. How could you tell the temperature in a blast furnace, for example? Stick a thermometer in there? Wouldn't last long, would it? You tell the temperature of molten iron by its color. You take a filter and you look through there and you put different filters in front of your tube until it matches the color of the iron in there and it tells you how hot the iron is. The same is true of the stars. Those who were here last night, we looked at blue stars, we looked at red stars, we looked at yellow stars. Each one of them is a different temperature. Red stars are cool. They're only about 5,000 degrees. Blue stars are hot. They're about 25,000 degrees. The sun is in between yellow it's about 10,000 degrees. Now, to get a handle on that, I should tell you that a good hot flame on a gas stove is about 3,000 degrees. So the surface of the sun is about three times as hot, depending on what zero means, on this scale, as a good hot gas flame in a stove. That's hot. But as you go up higher, if you could blot out the main yellow part of the sun, then it's no longer yellow. During an eclipse, for example, when the yellow part is covered, the next layer is red, and that's called the chromosphere. And that goes down to about 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Then when you go out even farther, and this layer you can only see during eclipses or with special instruments, you see the corona. 
and that goes to the Earth. The corona is breezing by here right now and to planets beyond us. We're in it. That corona is much, much hotter. This is a very strange thing we don't completely understand. The inside of the sun is 36 million degrees, then it goes 10,000, then it goes down to 6,000, and then it goes back up to 2 million. But why? We don't know. We have theories. We think that the reason the corona is that hot is because particles are leaving the sun and colliding with particles in space. And these collisions are making 2 million degree temperatures. But if you'd be out there, you'd freeze to death. The reason is that the particles are so scarce. Each particle is 2 million degrees, but they aren't enough to keep you warm. Just like if it were winter here and you'd light a match. How much would it do for the room? Yet the match is 1,000 degrees. So each particle in the corona is at a temperature of 2 million degrees, but the, the overall heat in the corona is very low. The corona is the most poorly understood part of the sun because we don't see it very often. Well, does anybody want to know anything else about the sun before we start looking at pictures? Yes. Uh, that will come a little later because I want you to see pictures of that. The vital statistics first. Let's see if I've skipped anything in what I have found. Oh, yes. We want to know what it's made of, don't we? Certainly. What is the sun made of? Well, what gas? I mean, um, natural gas, what? Well, it will surprise you to know that the sun contains every element there is. How do we know? We haven't gone up there and take a sample back. How can you tell what something is made of without going there? By the spectroscope, right. I will show you photos of the spectrum later, and by analyzing the lines in the spectrum of the sun, we've been able to identify every element known. In fact, some elements were discovered on the sun before they were discovered on the earth. The most notable one was named after the sun and then was found in Texas. Helium. Helium means sun metal because they discovered it on the sun before they discovered it on earth. And now we know it's not a metal at all, but we still kept the name helium. Helios for sun. Helios is a name for sun. Old Sal is another name for sun, but helio is the scientific, is that Latin or Greek? Greek, okay. Helio for sun. Helios was he the god of the sun? Something like that. Well, most of the sun is hydrogen. 74% hydrogen, 23% helium, and how much does that leave? That doesn't leave enough. 25%. Didn't make enough helium here. What percent does that leave? One. One percent, all the other elements put together. Why is that? because at the temperature of the sun, the other elements break down. If you took the earth and raised it to the temperature the sun has, it would break down into hydrogen and helium. The electrons simply cannot stick around, and the nucleus breaks up, and that's why the sun is mostly hydrogen. In fact, since the other stars are like the sun, it means that the universe is mostly hydrogen, even much more than 74%, because the sun, as we'll see later, is giving out. 
and therefore the helium ashes are accumulating. Well, one thing you probably haven't thought of is how much you would weigh on the sun if you had a asbestos suit on. Well, you would weigh so much that you couldn't open your eyelids. The muscles in your eyelids would not be strong enough to raise them. Now, some people get this disease on Earth, you know. Uh, Onassis, remember Onassis, before he died, had to tape his eyes open every day because the muscles deteriorated above his eyelids. And that's with gravity on Earth pulling the eyelids down. If you take off the rocket ship fast enough, your eyes close and you can't open them unless you take your fingers and open them up because your eyelids muscles are made for Earth. On the sun, you would weigh so much that you couldn't get up. It depends on which part of the sun you're standing, but the average is about 30 Gs. You would weigh 30 times your weight on Earth. So forget it. I mean, you would just be a flat, hot blob up there that's going to, <laughs> going to do a thing. Well, one more thing, because it's so important, and that is... Spock can't do anything for that. No. How much energy does the sun have? A lot. Let me tell you how many kilowatts of electricity the surface of the sun is giving out. 6,000 kilowatts per square foot. Now the sun is big. 6,000 kilowatts. Now if you, now how much is that you say? Well, let me, let me give it to you in another form. By the time the sun's energy reaches the earth, now, these 6,000 kilowatts don't disappear. They're going all over. They're hitting something eventually. Now, at 93 million miles, they're hitting the Earth. A very small part of that is hitting the Earth. And even at the distance of the Earth, we are still getting 126 watts per square foot. For every square foot here, if you could convert the sunlight into electricity, you could continually burn 126 watt bulb. Now let me put it in other terms. If you could convert the energy, the sunlight, hitting the Earth in a 150 mile square piece of ground, you could power New York City free of charge except for the conversion units that you have to pay for and run and repair and everything. That, that's through the atmosphere. That's through the atmosphere, at the Earth's surface. The Earth is daily receiving many times the energy requirements of the entire Earth. And why aren't we getting busy converting it? Astronomers and physicists I talk to are universally agreed that the reason we're not doing it is because we discovered petroleum first. If petroleum had not been discovered as a power source until the 20th century, we might well be using solar energy for most of our energy needs. So instead we're using fossil fuel, which are much more valuable for other things, making all kinds of chemicals and pharmaceuticals, and we'll run out of them eventually, besides polluting the earth. The most ambitious goal at the present time is that by the year 2000, 
we will probably use solar energy for about, about 5% of our energy needs. And maybe in another 100 years, 95%. Imagine solar farms, big heat-absorbing devices up in the air, so underneath you can still grow crops, converting them into electricity and powering cities from solar farms. No pollution, no nothing. Well, one thing before the pictures begin, and that is, if you're lucky, I told you you should never look at the sun directly, if you're lucky, over the water here, sometime in your life, you may see a very unique thing called a green flash. The sun, I said, is yellow. We look at it up there, we don't look at it directly, it looks kind of whitish, but the surface of the sun, the photosphere we see is yellow. But just before it goes down, especially over the water, it turns green. And anybody who brings me a photograph of the green flash, I will pay the going rate for green flash photos. <laughs> I will pay hundreds of dollars for a green flash photo. I one time gave a guy an A in my course for coming back with a photograph of a comet. I told you about that. But with a green flash photo, I'd be a famous person, and naturally the hundred I give you is only peanuts because I would get it raised and everything else. I'll show you a green flash photograph. We were at sea 17 days for the eclipse in 1977 with 20 scientists on board. And at the end of it, I said, has anybody got a photograph of green flash? And one guy said, yes, write, it, uh, write me in California, I'll send it to you. And he wrote, I'm sorry, I didn't get it. Now, why does the sun turn green just before it goes down? See, if you blink your eyes, it's gone, they say. Well, I read a new theory on the green flash today, and it says that it's a combination of the rainbow effect. You know, light, the rainbow is bent different amounts, and that's why red is there and so on down to blue. So just before the sun goes down, the other colors go off into space, and the blue is left that comes down here on Earth. It bends more than the red. So why is it green? Well, the other part of the theory is that the dust in the air soaks up the part of the blue that then lets the green come through. Good theory, right? The green flash is a fraction of a second. I'll show you a photograph in just a minute. Okay, let's get to the pictures. And the book that I'm taking these out of, and sometime I'd like to shoot these in slides so that the light doesn't glare in your face, but we have assistance here when we get the lights on and put this under here, who will hold the light from your face. This is a NASA book called A New Sun. These are some of the startling photos from Skylab in 1973 and 74. They took thousands and thousands of pictures of the sun up there. And some of these are very startling discoveries that were not even suspected years and years ago. So the first thing we're going to look at is what the sun looks like through a filter that takes all the colors out equally. Rob, can you get the lights, please? Notice, notice how much dimmer this is, because it's an opaque projector. Excuse me. I'm going to get the back here right. So we'll get all our blocking mechanisms going here. 
shine in your face? How's that? That's the natural color of the sun with all the other colors, all colors reduced equally. Now we'll notice a number of things right away. For one thing, it's got spots, right? Well, let's talk about those first. Sunspots have been seen for about 2,000 years. You do not need a telescope to see a sunspot. These spots, notice for one thing that they come in groups. You have a big one here, a smaller one here. Notice they're usually in pairs. Pair here, up here are several groups. These spots come and go. They will become more numerous over a period of about five years, and then they'll start decreasing over a period of about five years. This has been going on, as I say, for uh, as long as we've been looking at the sun. Another thing you'll notice is that there are no spots on certain parts of the sun. There are none way at the top, there are none way at the bottom, and if you understand that the sun's equator is tilted, goes up from here, up to here, there are no spots right on the equator. Here's one pole, here's one pole. How do we know that's the pole? Because if we watch the sunspots day after day, they move. They move from left to right. And the reason they move is that the sun is turning. Like every object in the universe, it's turning. It turns at various speeds for different parts of the sun. It's going fastest in the middle and slowest at the poles. It takes the sun about 27 days to make one rotation in the center of the sun and about 35 days at the poles, which is another proof that the sun is not solid. It's like stirring a pudding right around the spoon, it moves faster, and out away farther from the spoon, things go slower. So there's a drag on the sun. Now the sunspot cycle, as I told you, takes about 10 or 11 years. They get more and more numerous, and then they decrease and almost completely disappear, and then they start up again. We have the vaguest idea why the sun is doing that. But we do know that there are effects on the Earth as a result of those sunspots. Each one of those spots is much bigger than the Earth, for one thing. And the reason the spot is dark is because it's cooler than the rest of the sun. Remember, the yellow part of the sun is about 10,000 degrees. Those spots are about 2,000 degrees cooler, and so they look dark. But if you could see the spot by itself, then it would be very bright. It would still be much too bright to look at. Notice that around the outside of the sun, the sun is darker than at the center. And the reason for that is that the sun is cooler out there. Around the outside of the sun, another thousand or so degrees less, not quite as much as in a sunspot, but you're looking through a cooler layer of gas. And that's why it's always darker, not only on the sun, but all stars have the same thing. They have an atmosphere. So that much for, uh, well, I mentioned before there are effects on the Earth. What are some of those effects? 
I've had students prepare graphs that show a synchronization between sunspot cycles and the quality of French wine. Now, if you think that is strange, let me tell you that at one time, there was a period of about 150 years when there were hardly any sunspots at all. And during those 150 years, the world had its coldest temperatures on record. It's called the Little Ice Age. It was about 1600 to 1750. So the sunspots obviously, from that relationship, must have something to do with the weather. I've had graphs prepared to show a relationship, or at least a coincidence, between the number of sunspots and the number of teenage suicides. Now you say, is that a coincidence or isn't it? Well, if you look at the sunspot cycle over 40 or 50 years, and then I don't know where the student got these police records, but the curves went up and down about the same time. Why? Are there radiations coming out there that do funny things uh, to people's minds? Well, what are the spots? One thing we know about them is that they are very magnetic. Let me show you an enlarged spot, and we'll take a little closer look at that. Oh, I have the green flash here first, since it's on top of the pile, let's take a look at that. Now you see the guy's name down below, Arthur Fisher, who took the sequence of photos of the sun sinking into the water, uh, the horizon there, and just at the very end, he's got a green flash. Is that photo fake? I hope not. But back to the spots. There is an enlarged spot area. Is this in your face over here? There's one reason these projectors aren't very popular. In fact, we had to dig quite a while to find this one. Notice sunspots are not equally dark all over. They're dark in the middle, and then they have a little uh, lighter area before you get to the rest of the sun. Notice also that the rest of the sun is not exactly uniform in brightness either. The rest of the sun has a kind of a mottled appearance, or what is known in science as a rice grain effect. And that also indicates that the sun is not equally heated all over. The surface of the sun is a constantly moving and boiling mass. There are waves on it, like ocean waves up and down, hot and cold, and the sunspots are simply areas where these variations become very extreme. And it has been suggested that when you see a spot, you're seeing the top of a storm, where gases are coming up from underneath and expanding very rapidly and then cooling off. And that's why the spots look darker. Why they grow and then disappear again and then grow again every 11 years or so no one has the slightest idea. We do know how strong the magnetism is here, because we can put a device in a telescope, a magnetometer, to see 
what the number of Gauss and so on is compared to the Earth magnetic field, for example. And it has been deduced that the magnetism in the sun here in these spots is 1,000 times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. Now, we know that magnetism is caused by moving charges. If you move an electric charge through a conductor, you get a magnetic field around it, just like a bar magnet. So this substantiates the idea that sunspots are really very rapidly moving gases. Let me put one more picture of spots in here to show that the rest of the sun is also very Notice the rest of the sun, uh, as I said before, is also very mottled and what is called the rice grain effect and the contrast between light and dark is very great there.